Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Great, great to be with you all, all of you here in the room and all of you on the Zoom who are 10 blocks away or 10 countries away. Um, we are happy to be learning in our global Beit Midrash here together. And thank you for hosting and great to see you all for an exciting night of learning. Rabbi David Kasher serves as an associate rabbi at IKAR, a non-denominational spiritual community in Los Angeles. He actually is transitioning into a new role to lead Hadar LA. If you know Hadar, New York, they're opening an LA branch that he will be uh, leading the West Coast of Hadar, which is very exciting and will be a great partner to Valley Beit Midrash. He received his BA in political science at Wesleyan University, holds a JSD from Berkeley Law, and received his rabbinic ordination at Yeshivat Chobavei Torah. Rabbi Kasher grew up bouncing back and forth between the Bay Area and Brooklyn, hippies and Hasidim. And he was both, he's been trying to synthesize these two worlds ever since. He was part of the founding team at Keva, a nonprofit specializing in adult Jewish education. He has served in the faculty of Berkeley Law, the Wexner Heritage Program, Reboot, and the Bina Secular Yeshiva and also taught at Pardes, Svara, the Hartman Institute, AJR, and HUC. Rabbi Kasher is a teacher of nearly all forms of classical Jewish literature, but his greatest passion is Torah commentary, and he just published a book on the subject, Parshanut, or Parshanat, 54 Journeys into the World of Torah Commentary. If you are here, you can buy it at the front table. If you're on Zoom, you can buy it at Quid Pro or on Amazon. And um, I can say that tonight we're not engaging with a lecturer, although we love our lectures. We're engaging with an educator who wants to interact with you and, and interact with the text. And we invite you to do so to your comfort, both on the Zoom, which we will monitor um, to our best of our ability, and of course, here in the room as well. And um, we hope you'll engage in all levels. Rabbi Kasher is an educator of language, of emotion, of intellect, of spirit, of comparative law, and we hope you'll engage on all those levels with us. The last thing I'll say before I invite him to come up um, is I learned Torah with many people. I'm very fortunate to learn Torah with many, many people on a consistent basis, but there's only one person in the world I can call my chavruta, my study partner. And that's because for over 15 years, every week, more almost, every week we have a half hour where we learn together. We've been learning the Baal Shem Tov for the last few years, other things before that. And so it's an honor to call up my teacher and friend and chavruta, Rabbi David Kasher. Oh my goodness, okay. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks to Rabbi Nitzan, thanks to Bethel, and um, thanks to you all for being here. Thanks, of course, to Rabbi Shmuley, who, uh, who is uh, probably a lot of you know, is, is, is one of a kind. It's uh, one of a kind in my life, and that chavruta has meant a lot to me, and, and sort of one of a kind in in the world, in the Jewish world. We're very lucky to have him. And um, and he and Valley, Valley Beit Midrash do great, great work. Um, there's really nothing like this like lineup of speakers. And I feel like I, just, I snuck into it because I'm good friends with him. And it's like just a list of luminaries. And I asked, you know, Shmuley, can I, you know, I have this book coming out. You think I can make it to Valley Beit Midrash? And he let me in. So I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Um, so I, um, I 
wrote this book. Where's the book? I wrote this book, um, which I call Parshanut, but it is usually called Parshanut, and that, that um, I, I mean for there to be a little wordplay. We're going to talk a little bit about wordplay tonight, actually. Um, and Parshanut is, uh, as my bio just said, is is that's that's the 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 area in in Jewish learning where my soul has always sung the loudest. I, I just, I love this stuff. And this, this book is really, I wrote it as an expression of, of love, love of Torah, um, but in particular love of this, this tradition, this um, genre of, of Jewish literature, um, which, which we might call parshanut, um, which literally means explanation or interpretation, but I use to refer to the whole tradition of Torah commentary that starts with the rabbis of the Midrash, um, which is a, a parallel tradition to the to the Talmud, and then and we'll actually be focusing on that tonight. On down through the Middle Ages, which is really the, the classical, the kind of golden age of Parshanut, and continues into into the present age. In fact, um, one of the great oh, this is so nice. Thank you. One of, yeah, right. One, yeah, right. A rabbi knows her her podium. Um, one of the great Torah commentators of our age is on the back of my book. I'm so excited to have Dr. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg on the back of this book. I'm blurbing it because I, I really think um, she's an example of, of, of this tradition just continuing to beat and, and expand and ever expanding. There seems to be um, just an, an, an endless amount to say about this book. Um, and that's sort of what I wanna talk about tonight. How can we say so much about this one book, or this one book, which is five books, uh, the first five books of 24 books, but really it's that it's that we talk about the Torah, and it, we're referring to, to something special, something distinct, something sacred, um, but something unique about those, those first five books of our, of our Tanakh that we refer to as the Torah. Um, so I, I, I'm, this book is really just meant to uh, introduce people, uh, to familiarize people um, with this tradition of commentary. Uh, and it's a tradition that I, I fell in love with. I said, this is really a kind of a love song or 54 love songs um, to Parshanut. And I fell in love with this tradition, uh, both in one moment and, and also over time. So I want to just say a little bit about um, the moment, and then and then the the ongoing process. The moment that I think I, I kind of I, 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 everything changed for me, and I started down this path. Um, I was in a class that was um, a Rashi class. Rashi is is the most famous of the Torah commentators, the most well known, printed in many editions of the of the Torah, the Chumash, and we were studying Rashi's commentary on the first chapter of the book of Genesis, creation story. And it goes through the days, um, one day, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day, the sixth day. Uh, you, you can hear that name, the sixth day. It changed, suddenly there's a definite article. Um, it, you know, a, a fifth day, the sixth day. So there's a little bit of a, a shift there. And that's, that's how Parshanut always begins. This tradition is founded in questions. It always begins with a question. There's some, wait a minute, what just happened there? Some, some breaking of a pattern, some shift, some odd thing happened, jumped out, and I want to find an answer to this question. And the question here, of course, is why the sixth day, 
when all the other days have been a fifth, a fourth, a third. And you feel like, well, there's some obvious answers. The sixth day is the day that the that we were created, right? So it's the big day. It's sort of the, the grand culmination. Shabbat will be the grand culmination, but the sixth day is important. What Rashi says there is that the sixth is, is a little bit of a wink. It's meant to refer to another the sixth, which is many years in the future on the sixth of Sivan, as Hebrew month, a really Babylonian month name. Um, that's the day the Torah will be given. On the 6th of Sivan, that's the day that we celebrate Shavuot, the giving of the Torah. And so this is the Torah's way of, of winking to you on the 6th day, like, now I'm creating you people, but wait till you, you know, you're going to, eventually, you're going to, you're going to accept this Torah, right? That's, in fact, Rashi says, everything was hanging, waiting in suspension for Israel to accept the Torah. This is sort of a wild thought that the Torah is actually saying, hey, I'm, I'm the purpose of, of existence, this book you're reading. Uh, that in itself was sort of mind-bending to me, but it, I was especially struck by the idea that this was all based on one letter, one letter. And I thought, are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to read that much meaning into, into a the, but not just a the, one, one letter, right? And, and that, I, I was, that, that grabbed me, that captured me, and I've been studying Parshanut ever since. So that was the moment, but the process is a coming to love this book that Rabbi Nitzan actually spoke about, this book, which is uh, the Mikraot Gedolot, or the, uh, the Rabbinic Bible, it's sometimes called in English. And um, it, is, it is one of the classic books of our tradition. Now, the, the, the Talmud, one of the other classic books of our tradition, was published um, uh, sort of famously by this, um, for the first time, by Daniel Bomberg and, um, in Venice. And he published the Talmud and, and the layout of the Talmud, where there's a column in the middle and commentaries on both sides, and it's very famous, and his printing of it is very famous, um, and we owe a lot to, to, to that that layout of the Talmud. But the truth is, before he published the Talmud, the first thing he published was the first printed edition of the Rabbinic Bible, which was organized in much the same way, which is that there was a column going down the center. And nowadays, in most mikraot um, gudolot, the text is up at the top instead of at the center, but the same principle, a column down the center, and then commentaries on each side, sort of like huddled around surrounding the text. And in that first um, edition, it was just Rashi, who I've now mentioned, and then the Ibn Ezra, Abraham Ibn Ezra, who was the other kind of very different style, the other kind of classic uh, uh, commentator. And since then, if you open this edition, there are um, there are eight, eight or nine people on each page, and in some editions more. And that it, it's th that first moment I was captured, but when once I got to know this book, it became my 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 bread and milk it just became my sustenance this book and what i loved about learning in this way and i think a lot of people experience this in in talmud study and i experience it in this kind of study of the torah is that you have the text but all of these little boxes are different rabbis throughout the ages who are just sort of jumping in like wait i have a question i have a question but I see something there that, that I need to, I, there's a problem in the text. Remember, it all, all, we always begin this, um, this form of study with a question, some sort, of, some sort of curiosity, some inquiry into the text. 
And around the page, you have these rabbis throughout the centuries jumping in and, and offering their interpretations. And then another rabbi will say, I disagree with that interpretation. And maybe he's disagreeing with someone um, who lived hundreds of years earlier, but it's as if they're all in the same room together and um, they are having arguments and they have wildly different styles. They're on the same page, wildly different modes of interpretation. And you begin to get a sense of the sort of the, the voice of Torah throughout history. And all of those voices there on the page in what, um, in what I call a kind of beautiful cacophony. And it's that cacophony that I also fell in love with. Um, but what I want to, what, what I want to talk about tonight is what justifies this kind of commentary? What, what, where do these rabbis get off, so to speak, um, offering interpretations of one letter? And so first of all, that moment with, that I had with Rashi, where he's giving all of this meaning, and by the way, reading uh, the name of a month that doesn't even exist in a Babylonian month back into the Talmud and telling me that the Torah is aware of its own existence in the future, even as it's being written. And uh, where, how, how do we justify interpreting one letter? So that's one question. And another way to ask the, how do we justify this project question is to ask, how, how do we justify preserving all of these interpretations of the same verse? Isn't anyone right? Didn't anyone, didn't anyone get it wrong? I mean, do we really need all of these interpretations? Let's just rely on Rashi or the person who got it, got it, got it better than Rashi. What is it about this preservation of, of a multiplicity of voices, this idea that we, we can't help but, but imbibe as we read through this book, that, that it seems like this, this text could be understood on, on multiple levels, on many levels, on, on 70 levels in the, in, the, in the famous language of the rabbis. What, what, what is it about this book that justifies that kind of reading? And that's, that's the question that I want, but it's, it's almost like a prior question. You know, I'm going around and I'm talking about this book and it's, it's, it's Parshanut, the study of the Parsha. And so every week there's a Parsha, so it's easy to talk about the book, right? I'll just talk about this week's Parsha. Um, but I have two, two classes for VBM. So tomorrow night I'll be talking about the Parsha. And I thought, well, what else will I talk about? And this is almost like taking a step back and just asking the question, before we even get to the Parsha, what, what is it that we're saying about this book that allows for the kinds of interpretations which I, which I am which I so cherish and which I'm highlighting in this book. And to answer that question, what is it about this book? What's so special about this book? Um, we have to turn to the rabbis. Now, when I say the rabbis, capital T, capital R, I, I'm, I'm not talking about uh, me and, and Shmuley and, and Nitzan, we are rabbis. But when I say the rabbis, I'm referring to a particular period in Jewish history, the rabbinic period. And the first folks who started to call each other rabbi, my, my, my master, my teacher, my rabbi, and that is the rabbis of the Talmud and the Midrash, which is what we'll be paying more attention to. But the Talmud is a good rough guide to what period we're thinking about. We're thinking about the scholars who existed between the first and sixth uh, approximately centuries of the common era. And these are the folks that gave us the Judaism that we have today now interpreted in, in all kinds of different, you know, 70 and more different ways. But it, it starts with the rabbis and what the rabbis, the reason the rabbis are so important for understanding the Torah is because it's the rabbis 
who told us that it was all about the Torah. It's all about the Torah. In other words, the rabbis were the folks, and there were many folks who were gathered around trying to figure out what to do after the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 of the Common Era. The destruction of the Temple and the destruction of Jewish sovereignty altogether in the Holy Land and the beginning of the, of the Great Exile. There was one exile to Babylon, but now the beginning of the exile that lasted for, um, as Hatikva says, 2,000 years. So the temple was destroyed, the Romans took over, we were sent out of our land, and it seemed like Judaism was over. That's it. The whole, the, the whole religion is structured around living in this land and worshiping at this temple, and if we don't have the, the temple and we don't have the land, there's really, that's it. This is the end of the story. We lost. And so there were lots of groups sitting around trying to figure out what do we do now? What do you do? Lots of, lots of factions, probably the most successful among them uh, was probably the Christians who eventually splintered off um, and, 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 and started their own thing. Um, but, the, but the most successful faction that remained what we call Jewish is um, the rabbis or the, the Pharisees. And their central answer to the question, what do we do now? Um, their central answer was Torah. In other words, we've got to shift the focus of this religion, this culture, this civilization, this, this mission. We've got to shift it from the temple to the Torah. And that was what they said. That was their central insight is that we could gain the meaning of our lives, our spiritual lives, our, our Jewishness through this book, through the practice of the laws in this book, that became very important to them, but almost more so through the study of this book. So the, stu the study of this book itself was to become a sacred act, okay? So that's the answer. And surprisingly, that actually seemed to work pretty well. I mean, that's the answer that actually we've inherited all these thousands of years. They did something that stuck. They, they figured out how to create a Judaism that was um, uh, that was transportable, <laughs> that um, could be um, could be taking place in many different parts of the world, and that could be lived no matter what the the the, the, the historical circumstances in which we we found ourselves. If we just had this book, we could sit around and read and study this book, and that all of that is to say. There's something about this book. They were, they were suggesting there's something about this. It's not just reading as, a, as an act. It's not just any book. There's something about this book that is distinct, that is special, that has in it um, a certain kind of power or potency. And that, that is another way of framing the question that I want to explore with you tonight. What is it about this book? What's so special about this book? According to the rabbis, those folks who first told us, that this book had this kind of power to sustain our, our people through history. Okay, so, um, so what justifies um, this book? Well, I guess what we're asking there is a kind of theological question. Because they're saying there's something special about this book, something, and of course, that seems to be related to the idea that this book is from Moses, God's prophet, and so it's divine. The book is divine in some way. But in what way? What is it about this book? What is the theology lying behind this book? 
And so we could ask the rabbis that question. What, what is your theology? What, is, what are you saying about this book? But the problem is that the rabbis didn't, they weren't really systematic thinkers or they, they were systematic thinkers in, 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 in matters of law. They could keep, come up with legal systems, but they weren't philosophically systematic. First of all, just because it was, it's not one voice. There's a lot of them saying lots of different things. And so there are lots of expressions um, of the, the, the theology of, of the Torah. And you can find those that sort of reflections on the nature of the Torah across rabbinic literature, but it's, it's very difficult to, first of all, compile it all together. Um, and it's difficult to say um, that there are these seven principles and they are the official principles of the rabbinic vision of the Torah. Um, the rabbis, in some ways, their thought is more impressionistic. Here's an image, here's a parable, here's an idea, here's a way of thinking about it. And so um, what I propose to do with you all tonight is to look at one of those images, one of those impressions um, that the rabbis use and one that recurs, one that they return to again and again and again. And I think that this image will tell us something about the theory behind this new vision for Judaism or no longer new, but this sort of kind of a reboot of Judaism, this kind of revolutionary approach to Judaism, which is that um, as, the, as the Muslims said, we could become a people of this book. Um, so we're going to look at one image tonight, and the image, as you know from the title, the image is fire. Now look at the image of fire. And, um, and if we follow that image, and, and in a sense, in, we're, because we're just looking at, a, at an image and reflecting on an image, there's something going to be kind of poetic about our conversation. We'll be reflecting on what, what the, the nature of that image and what, what it evokes in us. Um, uh, but I hope we'll also begin to, to get a real sense of, of what that says about the words of the Torah themselves. Um, and as um, uh, Rev. Shmuley said at the outset, I am I really hoping that we'll have, even though I'm here up on a stage, I'm hoping that we'll have a conversation. You know, um, I, I am just, a, I'm a, I teach in a certain way, which is interactive and there are some people who in every class they talk the whole time and I used to criticize those people because it's so frontal and it should be more interactive. Um, but then I realized that actually when I'm in this situation, I wish I was one of those people and I could just talk at you in an inspiring way for the next hour, but I can't do that. I really, I won't be able to, to get very far if I don't have your help. So I beg of you to, to jump in and, and hopefully we'll be in real time interpreting this material together. Okay, hi to the folks on, on Zoom. And um, and let's uh, let's get started. Any questions before I begin? Anything confusing in what I said so far? Okay. All right. So um, the text that I want to start with tonight, we're going to look at four texts tonight, and um, the most the text that really um, started me off on this 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 path this this exploration of the image of fire comes from the Midrash Tanhuma. The Midrash Tanhuma is a very very special, very beloved work of Midrash. Now, as I said earlier, Midrash is the kind of parallel um, uh, uh, production of those rabbis. We know them most famously from the Talmud, which is their legal conversation. But Midrash was those same rabbis having conversations about the, the text, doing the work of Parshanut, having conversations about um, the meaning of the text and interpreting the text. And the Midrash Tanhuma 
Uh, I was just talking to, let's see if he's on here. Yes, Rabbi uh, Avi Habibi. I was, at, I, was, I was talking to him. We have a Chavruta also, and I was talking to him, and I said, what do you think is so special about the Tanchuma? Why do people like the Tanchuma so much? And he said, I think wisely, that first of all, um, Rashi quotes it all the time. So Rashi kind of made the Tanchuma famous. And he said, and also there's something about the Tanchuma that's nice. There's lots of stories in it. It isn't some other collections of Midrashim are very linguistically focused, but you have a lot of tales told in the Tanchuma. So it's just juicy. Um, and um, it is a ninth, 10th section. 10th century collection. We're not exactly sure because there were two editions, but it's clear that some of the material goes way back, goes all the way back to the first and second century. So um, you never quite know with collections of Midrash like this, but it's named for Tanchuma, the first rabbi um, that, is, um, that is quoted in, in some of the opening sections. And what we're going to do is look at, after those opening introductory sections, the first piece in the Midrash Tanchuma, the the, 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 the first piece um, right there on the first verse of the Torah, in the beginning, God created. And in this first piece, we're going to all, I think we could stay with just this text all night because we're already going to get a lot of, a lot of theology, a lot of, in other words, when I say theology, I mean, uh, what is it that the rabbis are saying is, is divine, is unusual, is sacred and special about this text, the Torah? And we're going to get that. Um, right from the start here. And then, as you'll soon see, um, we'll eventually get an image of fire. And once we once we get that image, we'll sort of keep chasing it down for the rest of our, our time. So um, without further ado, let's let's take a look at this. Uh, this is this is one of the texts that has really defined my thinking around the Torah uh, more than than almost any other. So in the beginning, Rashid Baralo came. And it's important to note that. The reason that the rabbi, remember, Prussian always begins with a question. There's something strange in the text, something that needs addressing. The reason the rabbis feel like um, empowered to jump in and say, hey, this, there's an interpretation that needs to be offered here is because there's something odd in, in even these first words of the Torah. And part of what's odd is that first word, bereshit, it's not so clear what it means. In the beginning, first of all, the prefix, the word, the, the letter bet, b could mean in, could mean on, could mean with. And reshit, it's not, reshit is the beginning, but it seems like the beginning of something. It's usually used in connection to something else. So um, it, it literally means the first, what is the first thing? And so the rabbis are going are gonna to play on that, that, that vagary in the, um, in the first word there, and tell us that it isn't in the beginning, but with the very first thing. With the first thing. What is the first thing? Well, it turns out the first thing is wisdom. Okay, so, Bereshit Baral In the beginning, God created, or with the first thing, God created. Zeshamar Katub. This is what scripture means when it says, the Lord founded the earth with wisdom. Okay. In other words, the interpretation here is, um, with wisdom did God create the world. Now, what justifies that? Well, some of the vagaries, as I said, in the word reshit, but also a very famous um, phrasing in the book of Proverbs, reshit chokhmah. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, but the link between reshit and chokhmah means, oh, there's some connection. Maybe wisdom is the very first thing, the founding thing. Okay, so with wisdom did God create the world. That is, what does that mean? That is, 
David, um, David, who's uh, spent a lot of who's uh, uh, um, the, spent a lot of time with the Zohar, with the mystical tradition, because he's about to put out a book of his own, Transcendental Judaism. Um, so take a take a look out for that. Um, uh, mentions a kind of parallel between these uh, these expressions of the midrash that wisdom is the first thing, and um, and a stream of mysticism that will later pick up on the idea that wisdom is the foundational pr principle, the godly principle. Maybe the very um, being of God is somehow related to wisdom, and that'll get played out in the Zohar and on through the Kabbalistic tradition. I'm glad you mentioned the Zohar because the very next statement is a really bold one that is also famously expressed in slightly different language in the Zohar. So this will look familiar to you, David. Um, the next, okay, so once we said that wisdom is the thing that the world was built with, um, what does that mean? And then the Midrash gives us an answer. And here's the first sort of window we have into um, what the rabbis are thinking the Torah is or does. That is, the Holy Blessed One, when creating the world, first took counsel from the Torah, first got advice from the Torah, got wisdom from the Torah, and then created the world. As it says, counsel is mine and sound planning, I am understanding, and all power is mine. So another, another citation from Proverbs. But okay, let's just... Let's just hover on that idea for a second. And in the Zohar, um, it uses the language, say, the even punchier language, etalma. So uh, God looked, looked, stared into the Torah and then turned around and created the world. Okay, so that's like, there's, there's our first crack at it. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what are we saying about the Torah if the Torah is the thing that God took counsel with or looked in in order to create the world, what does that mean about the Torah? All right, so, all right, let's let's warm up the room a little. Yeah, that's right. There's some kind of it, it, it's like, what do you mean? Didn't God write the Torah? But it seems like now God's talking to the Torah. Like the Torah is another divine entity and God, the creator is in some sort of dialogue with the Torah. Okay, good. Other thoughts? Yeah. Good, good. The Torah isn't something that comes into the world at a certain time. The Torah precedes the world, precedes the world and is, is in fact the blueprint for the world. Yeah. Well, now, okay. So now, now we're getting into some tricky territory. I mean, what is it? Could the Torah really be equal to God? Or in this case, it almost seems like the Torah is advising God, like the Torah is prior. Now, I don't know the answer to the, did the Torah come before God, but one gets the feeling that Torah, God, wisdom, these are all part of a, a like a primal divine energy. And it's from that energy that, 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 that the world springs forth. The wisdom upon which the, the earth was founded, and what does it mean to say the earth was founded in wisdom? I don't know. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a fairly miraculous place. There seems to be great wisdom at work in the world in the system of things. So that, that wisdom is what produces the world, and the Torah is the embodiment of that. So now, what does that mean about the Torah? What does that mean about this book? All right, let's, let's keep investigating. 
famously, Rashi actually brings that midrash that um, that God took counsel with the angels before not creating the world, but before creating um, human beings. And, but that midrash is often phrased. There's a very different tone to that midrash, which is that, and and, and the reason for that, the like the question that the that the commentator has is that it, the Torah says, na, adam, let us make the person. So who's the us? So, oh, that must be that God was talking to somebody up there. And I guess it was God's angels, right? But that Midrash is very different because it's, it's framed as God, God placating the angels by bringing them into the conversation so that they wouldn't feel bad or jealous or left out of the process. I mean, okay, so the, the, do we believe in angels? What is it you've already been talking about here? Well, let's leave those questions aside. But this is a very different tone. This is that, no, the Torah is God's source for wisdom. God looks into the Torah and gets ideas. Not, is it okay with you if we create the world, you lesser being? But actually, on some level, there's, there's some sense that the Torah is the Torah's the ultimate authority here. Yes, yeah. It's as if the Torah wasn't even a book. It's more like a concept. It's more like a concept. It's like some property that God is in constant consultation with. And I think that's right. There's some sense here that the Torah is something beyond just the words of this book. That the Torah is, is the embodiment of wisdom itself. And that sort of framing uh, does 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 well to explain the way that we speak of the Torah. Sometimes we don't say the Torah, which seems like a direct reference to the book, but sometimes we just say Torah. Torah. Torah is, I love Torah. And I'm not, I love the Torah, but I love Torah. And, and that seems to refer to something beyond just the book, but the whole conversation, the whole surrounding discussion. And yes, I think the this framing also is is presenting some kind, something that is beyond a Torah that is beyond just the Torah, the book of the Torah. Okay, so that takes us to um, the question of what, what then is the Torah? What is, like, what is, what is that primal Torah? What is that Torah that was, that, that existed in God's realm? And uh, like, how, how was that Torah? How do we conceive of that Torah? And here we get the image that I think is just, um, just particularly striking in this Midrash. So um, let's look at the second paragraph here. And with what was the, was this Torah written? This Torah that God consulted. What was this Torah written? With black fire upon white fire. As it is said, and now there's going to be a little word play with one of the verses from Song of Songs. His locks are curled and black as a raven. Okay, so... Kvutzotav, his locks, taltalim, are curled, and the wordplay is going to be, it means that from every crown, quotes, on every letter of the Torah, hang heaps and heaps, tile tilim, of laws. Okay, so um, the crown, the crowns, probably many of you are familiar with the crowns on top of the letters, the, the calligraphy of the Torah is such that um, even, you know, the, our printed Torah books have little little peaks at the end of a, a lot of, the, lot of the, the letters in standard printing. But in the, in the scroll of the Torah, they're, they're even fancier little, like sometimes they look like actual crowns on top of the letters. And the suggestion here is that on every, in every little, little, little crown, every little 
us poking out of every letter, there, there is the capacity to learn piles and piles of law, piles and piles of ideas that can emerge from every, not just letter, but every crown on every letter. Okay, so now we begin to, I was talking earlier about the, the way that one letter can produce a multiplicity, the way the whole Torah produces a multiplicity of interpretation, but even one letter, starting to get a sense of where that notion might come from. But let's start at the beginning of this image. Let's start with the black fire and white fire. What is, that's a beautiful image. What, what the heck does it mean? The Torah was written as black fire upon white fire. What's, what's the black fire? What's the white fire? Anybody want to try and do some, some poetic reading here? What, what, what are these two entities? Okay, good. Okay, so D David gives us a couple of paths to walk down here. One is, um, we can just reflect on the image of fire. They chose the image of fire, and as we'll soon see, the rabbis will choose again and again the image of fire as a way of talking about the Torah. And we will have to do a lot of thinking about why that, that particular image, that particular I don't know, substance or phenomenon um, so well spoke to their sense of what the Torah was all about. So we can think about fire and fire as cleansing and fire as, as hot. We'll think about it more and more as we move forward. But this particular image of black fire on white fire well, David says something that that in some ways is, is fairly fairly obvious, fairly intuitive, which is black and white. Well, that's isn't that the letters? That's the letters on the page. The, the letters are black, and then what's white? I guess the paper or the spaces in between the letters, as David put. What's not said? And I think that is that's a good reading of this very mystical image. That's like. I don't even know if it's mystical. It's it's sort of it's it's primordial. It's like God up there with like shooting black fire and white fire and forging something that eventually becomes our Torah. But to use black and white when we talk about the Torah, inevitably we think of the letters of the Torah. And if the letters of the Torah are the black fire of the Torah, then this image suggests that there's some other part of the Torah, the white fire of the Torah, and that's also part of the Torah. And that means that we have to think about what's between the letters, what's behind the letters, what's more that's not being said. The black fire is the Torah and it's fiery and it is being said and it is being written into letters, but there's some other part of the Torah that's, that's, that's also fiery, but that is, that is, is more difficult to, to name or to identify or, or, to, or to write down in letters. Right, like there are other cultures, other traditions, other spiritual traditions that are you know, around the area. Maybe are competing for the for the minds and hearts of, of of people in the region that suggest that there are many forces in the world. There are, you know, this is the famous Jewish polemic against the multiple deities or the deities of nature or the or the great the great gods battling it out in the sky, and that's. Not our position. That's what Judaism comes to push back against. But it is somehow when we imagine that there are there's some there's some drama in the heavens or some sort of conversation hap happening up there. It is more okay to sort of almost deify letters and words and speech and language and this book. It, the Torah is not another God, although we've been playing dangerously close to that, to that idea. But the, it is okay to exalt words and to give them the, 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 the status almost of, a, of, a div of another divine being, one that God would be in conversation with. 
So the 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 black and white fire in the in the heavens is 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 another great force in the heavens that we would never say is another god, but has that kind of potency, has that kind of power to it. There was also fire in the temple. There's a kind of a through line between the way that we used to summon down this god, summon down the presence of this god into our realm through this thing. I mean, the right uh, the, the fire is the discovery of fire, right? Say the Greeks is like the, the thing that made humans great. There's something about fire that, that suggests a kind of um, an ability to create some, some, some powerful force down here and so powerful that God would recognize it in the temple days and come down and, and fire would, in a sense, summon God down onto earth. So surely the Torah has the same kind of power. Surely the Torah has the same kind of, kind of fire. Okay, let's take one more comment and then we'll move to the next image of fire here. What, what's the significance? So fire visibly is fluid or moving. Uh, that's all, and, and but that's a lot. <laughs> um, Rabbi Bisman, is, is that right? Uh, just said a mouthful. And that, that's one of the important things about this fire image is that it's kinetic, right? It, it moves, it, it is, right? let's start to name things that fire is because as we, as we name the Torah as a, as an object of, of, of divine fire, we're saying that it is purifying, that it is moving, that it is hot, that it is maybe dangerous, okay? So yes, kinetic is important. There's something not static about the Torah, something moving about the Torah, right? And to connect this back to the fires that were put out in the temple, but the Torah is a fire that continues to blaze, right? And I think that is important to the rabbis that there's, there is an ongoing fire. Okay, so um, that's the Midrash Tanchuma's kind of opening gambit here, the black fire on white fire, that image, and, and what it says, not just about, not, not just because it evokes the image of fire, but because that, something about that fire, something about the fire that we're now trying to reflect on and describe, something about that fire means that every letter holds the possibility for infinite interpretation. Okay, so that's, that's the connection we're also going to have to forge over the course uh, of our conversation. What is it about fire that allows us to produce heaps and heaps of law for every letter? Okay, so keep that question in mind. All right, I just, um, I can't help myself here. We're in the Midrash Tanchuma, and it opens with this fire image. And then later on, um, I found this, uh, later on, meaning in the book of Exodus, in Parsha Itro, which is the actually the Parsha that, uh, in which the Torah is given. So you won't be surprised to hear more descriptions about the Torah here. But boy, if we were playing with fire in, um, in the first text, I just thought of that just right here on the spot. Not bad, right? If we were playing with fire here in the first text, um, wait, um, wait till you see how, how far we go with that image now in the second text. Okay. You find that when the Holy Blessed One gave the Torah, everything was a fire. It was entirely a fire. As it is said, the Lord came from Sinai and in the divine right hand was a law of fire. Now this is a bit of a funny word. Again, that the, again there's always an oddity that the commentators are playing with. In this case, the word is eshdat or eshdot. It's not clear what that word is. Is it a place? They don't actually in the text of the Torah, it's written as one word, but our tradition is to read it as two separate words. Ish dot, which becomes a fiery law, a law of fire. 
Okay, so that's the proof text that the rabbis have that in the that, that when the God gave the Torah, it was entirely a fire. And just listen to this description, and then I'll call, I'll turn to you. As Rish Lakish said, this is just like if you if you if you like the image, you're gonna like you're gonna like the next version of it. Hatorah shall The Torah was fire. Oroteha shall Its parchment was fire. Katava shall Its writings were fire. Cheta shall Its thread was fire. I imagine the Torah that we pull out, that we pull out of the ark, and it's all fire. We thought, oh, the black fire, that must be the words. The white fire is maybe the, the space between the words, but now it's all fire. The Torah, the thread connecting the, it's all blazing, blazing, blazing fire. Okay, so the Torah is fire. Okay, so what does that mean? The Torah is entirely fire. Yeah, the intensity with fire as an image that suggests great intensity and great intensity and, and great wisdom. That is, we've said that the, that the idea is God created the world with wisdom, but it was a fiery wisdom, which means it's the kind of wisdom that is almost overwhelming. And, and what Archer says that we, we look up to, we still look up to the, we, we revere, revere or slash fear the, the, the wisdom of the Torah. There's something about it that is so awe-inspiring that it's awe-inspiring in the way that fire is. This is a scary image almost. Moshe comes down and it's just blazing and it's, beautiful as fire is and it's impressive and it has power but you have to be careful you have to stand back a little bit and stand back they did stand back they did because um here the torah is entirely blazing with fire but take a look at the other thing that we find in this image that is of fire because what did they stand stand back from well first of all they stood back from from the mountain when the mountain was was all ablaze uh, people were told to stand back from it but the other thing that the people stood back and feared a little bit was, well, uh, what, the, what, the, what the Midrash here is going to call the middleman. So let's figure out who the middleman is. And the face of the middleman, a sarsur. Sarsur is like a word that means like the broker, the dealer, the, the one who goes in between. Um, in modern Hebrew, it has a particular connotation, which is a little indecent, so I won't mention now. But the middleman... Um, uh, the face of the middleman, hasarsur nasu piv shel esh. Oh, you know what? I translated that route that wrong. Not the face, but the mouth. The mouth of the middleman became fire. Okay, so as it says, and the um, and Aaron and the children saw that Moses, Moshe's face was radiant. Oh, that's why I translated his face. I wonder if that's a typo. If it's panav or piv, either way, either his mouth or his face was of fire. As Aaron and the children saw that Moshe's face was radiant and they were afraid to come close to him. This is like Archer's fear, the little, the, 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 the little bit of trembling that, that, they, that we have when we come into contact with Torah. And who's, who were they afraid of? The giver of the Torah, of Moshe. Now, why is Moshe's face on fire or his mouth on fire? What does that even mean? All right, the Torah, we say, it was a lot to say poetically that the Torah is entirely a fire. But now Moshe is also ablaze. What are we supposed to understand from that? What does it mean that Moshe became fire? Let, let Archer pick up on the same idea. So remember that Moshe is the one that communicates the Torah. And Moshe doesn't like give them a scroll. Moshe speaks to them the words that God says. And so 
If the Torah is of fire and it was presented in fire, then when Moses comes down from the mountain and tells them the Torah, he's shooting fire out of his mouth. <laughs> so fire-breathing Moshe. Okay, but what, okay, but what does that mean? What does it mean that, that Moshe spits fire, that he blazes fire, that's hard to look at Moshe because having received the Torah, he has become a, a, a being of fire. What does that mean about Moshe or about any of us who speak words of Torah? M Michael, right? Michael says, um, fire is a source of warmth. It keeps us alive. Many times we need the power of fire to survive. It's, it's, a, it's a resource for us. It's a, it's a nourishing force for us, but it's also dangerous. Right? You don't want to touch fire. And so it is. And so now, now we're starting to see a theme built. Now, every time we see fire, we can substitute the word Torah for fire. So what would it mean to say that Torah is a sustenance for us, that we warm ourselves by Torah, but we have to be careful because Torah can hurt us. And so those who communicate the Torah, they're playing with fire, right? They have to be careful because you have to learn how to handle fire. You see, you know, those fire jugglers or fire swallowers, right? They know how to play with fire and it's marvelous. Suddenly they're able to summon fire and to wow us with fire, to start a fire for us. But you have to know how to handle it because if it gets out of control, then you can hurt somebody. Fire, what does fire mean in this tradition? What's the sim symbolism of fire in this tradition? Well, one of the things fire symbolizes in this tradition is Hashem, God itself. Right? Even the Torah speaks of God as Eshochelet, an all-consuming fire. And, and again, you feel like, oh, that, well, that image makes sense. It's powerful. It, it's bright, but it's dangerous. You have to watch out for it. And so we were saying this at the beginning. God is in dialogue with the Torah. The Torah seems almost like co-equal to God. So it's because God, Torah, wisdom, they're all made of the same stuff, that same fiery energy upon which the earth is founded. Yeah, if you disregard the Torah, or you disregard is a good word for it, almost like you forgot that the fire was blazing, right? Or you, or you sin against the Torah, right? The, 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 it's dangerous. The fire will consume you. There's some element of danger here. You know, another uh, metaphor for the Torah um, that the rabbis use is the, that it is, it's like a drug. It's like a potion. And it can either be a samachayim, a drug, a drug of life, or it can be in the wrong hands, a samhamabit. A, a potion that leads to death. So same thing here. There's something about the Torah that has great power, but also has great potential for destruction. And don't we know that from, from, our, from our encounters with Torah? Don't we know versions of Torah that are nourishing and comforting and warming? And don't we know other versions of Torah that are dangerous? I mean, is, isn't that right? That in the hands of the wrong, in the mouth of the wrong interpreter, the Torah can become a very dangerous entity. So that, that's, that's, that's the, kind of, the, the kind of fire that we're playing. Right? This, is, this, says David, is, is an important image for us to hold on to because sometimes we, we, we're, we, we love the Torah. So we're used to just sort of sweetening, oh, and the Torah's great and we just love it. And it's always peace and it's always sweet. And, it, and then you open the Torah and it isn't always sweet, is it? It's, it's dangerous in there. And what do we do with the binding of Isaac story? What do we, what do, we do with, with war and violence and, you know, the, 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 first, the first siblings in the Torah end up, end up in a murder? 
This is not all of its paths or peace. There's something blazing in there. And, and David wishes, and maybe, maybe, maybe we can wish, sorry, Daniel, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So, I'm so sorry. So sorry. I, there are two names I confuse, one David and, and Daniel, and then Amanda and Allison. So I'll always get those two names wrong. So uh, I, 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 forgive me. Um, that the Torah is like, there's something important about speaking, uh, uh, speaking about the danger or, or the, or the, or the, the force of the Torah, because that's the Torah that we see, and we can't just paper it out. Okay. Yes, Rabbi. One observation, Beshlakish, just like that. Oh, yeah. And Reshlakish is the one who started out as a highwayman. So, yeah, that's right. A highwayman, a robber. You're striking to Torah, not to broaden people. And Reshlakish is the one who can bring himself into this picture of the Torah, maybe the potential for one, maybe potential for the other. Yeah. So, as we're discussing this, I'm thinking it's also. You know, the one, how do we grapple or we can bring ourselves into this topic? Yeah, great. Rachel Akish, who was a, a man who knew danger, a man who understood danger and understood the safe life and the wildlife and the way that Torah could be, um, could be, could conduct either of these energies, these forces. Okay, um, let's take one more comment and then I want to look at the next. The next text. It was a, a thousand years later that we had a great uh, uh, fire in London. So, and today we cannot control fire. We have candles, we have lanterns, we have small house fires that can be controlled by um, fire engines. And, but look at the uh, brush fires that burn into thousands of acres. Uh, so we have not even today the uh, power to control, if you will, the form, which I think the rabbis were saying. You can do a lot to us, but you cannot control the form. It is there. It is a fire that cannot be controlled and it will not be able to be controlled for thousands of years. Um, they learned in uh, the, the, the 11th through the 16th century, at least, uh, to purge this, to purge the community. Um, and they could do that. But again, the Jews said, you cannot destroy this, you cannot control because our form is fire. Okay, all right. And today so, we have expressions like a bright shine, a passion in the fire lit in some way. So we that uh, in our Okay, I want to I pick up on this idea that fire is uncontrollable and that this in one way um, continues our, like, our, our, our exploration so far. We've been talking about the, 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 the danger of Torah, the power of Torah, the, the thing that ought to be feared. But the other aspect of Torah spreading is the kinetic aspect that Rabbi Bisman mentioned, which is that Torah spreads. Moses went up to the top of the mountain and he came into contact with God and Torah and he came back ablaze. And then he communicated the Torah to other people and presumably we caught on fire 
and we pass the Torah on and there's something about the, the spread of Torah. It can be dangerous, but it's all, that's also part of the power is that it, it can spread. This Torah can spread like a blaze and we, and we can light someone else's fire and then they light the fire that continues on, again, that, that, that image of the eternal flame. Okay, so with that in mind, with Moses catching the fire and then passing the fire on, I want to look at um, one other, um, Moses wasn't the only person descri described to be, to become fiery through their encounter with the Torah. And I want to look at um, uh, one other image many, many years later of another um, great rabbi, um, Ben Azai. Some say he was not a rabbi. He's always just called Ben Azai. He's one of the great early sages, second century um, Tana of the, uh, of the Midrash and, and Talmud. And um, this is a great story of, of Ben Azai when he would learn Torah, um, as it says, um, fire would surround him. Okay, so take, take a listen here. And then soon, Rabbi Akiva is going to worry just what we've been worrying. Isn't this a little dangerous? So take a listen. Um, ben Azai had a Yoshev Bedorish, the Haish Svibotav. Ben Azai would sit and learn Dorish, same language as Midrash. He would he would seek meaning in the Torah. He would learn the Torah and fire would surround him. Whoa. So they went and told Rabbi Akiva, Master, Ben Azai sits and expounds and fire flashes around him. You see, what, you see what's going on over there? Something's wrong with Ben Azai. You got to go take a look at this. And Rabbi Akiva, he said, he went, he went to Ben Azai and said to him, so I heard you sit and expand. They repeat the same image again and again, like, is this really happening? Yep, this is really happening. I heard you sit and expand and fire flashes around you. And this is a great response. Amar Lohen. Then as I says, yep, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's how I learn. Yeah. So, um, so Akiva said, and now this is a really interesting question. Shema b'chadre merkava asuk. Maybe you were working you were getting into the inner chambers of the chariot, Merkava. The chariot is a reference to the great chariot, is the char chariot that Ezekiel gives us in his mystical vision. This is really the beginning of Jewish mysticism, is the first chapter of Ezekiel, where he beholds God sitting on a chariot. And what does that even mean? And there are all these animal faces and things swirling around and all right, talk about it, like mystical imagery. But Rabbi Akiva says, you're studying Torah and fires all around you. You know what it must be? You're probably doing Ezekiel style mysticism, right? What's, what's implicit in the question? Some assumption that if, 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 if the fire is coming out, well, you must be doing some next level kind of quantum Kabbalah that's the only, if it's really fiery, you're, this is, this is mystical Torah. This is, this is, this is the deep, deep, the sowed of Torah. That, that must be what you're doing, because otherwise, why is, the, why is this fire popping up around you? And Ben-Azai says, and I want us to think about his response here. Ben-Azai replied, love, no. Ela haiti yoshev. I was just sitting and connecting words of Torah to one another. The, word, the language actually is chorez, which in modern Hebrew we use to mean rhyming one words of Torah, but it doesn't exactly, it means stringing words of Torah together. 
I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't doing Ezekiel mysticism. I was just looking at the Torah itself, just looking and making connections, one word to another, and then from the Torah to the words of the prophets, and then connecting the words of the prophets to the words of the later writings. These are all three sections of the Tanakh. And the words were as joyous as when they were first given at Sinai. And as sweet as the time of their first utterance. And were they not first uttered in fire? As it says, and he quotes Deuteronomy, and the mountain was blazing with fire. Oh, now that's a proof text, right? This is the image of the description of the revelation at Mount Sinai and that Moses gives in the book of Deuteronomy. And it says, the mountain was ablaze. So the, remember Mount Sinai? It was all on fire. Fire is, as we've been saying so far, fire is where is the nature of the Torah. It's the origin of the Torah. It starts in fire. It's forged. The world is forged in the Torah's fire, but it is fire. And so, says Ben Azai, I create fire, not by finding the mystical secrets in the Torah, but just by making connections from one word. I'm just doing simple Torah here. Just simple Torah. Now, what does he mean by that? He's just, I'm just making connections and suddenly things go ablaze. That's how you, Moses had to go to the top of the mountain, but Benazai's just sitting there like, oh, look, this word's like that word. And this word's like that word. So what is, what is he saying? What is he saying about the way we read or interpret the Torah? That our connections, our rhymes, so to speak, can create fire. It's not in the heavens. Right, the, it says in the in the in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's famously repeated by the rabbi. We can do this right here and now, and you don't have to be a kabbalist to get to the fire of the Torah. Any one of us can do it. Sit down, start making connections. Just read through the Torah, see what you see, and that will produce fire. Any one of us has an access not just to the Torah, but to the blaze of the Torah, to the fire of the Torah, and it doesn't take much because, again, what was our question at the outset? What is this book? What is the nature of this book? Well, the rabbis are saying there's something about this book that is so potent that if you just make one little connection between two words, it's in there. The fire is waiting. Anyone can ignite it. That's really important, what Archer is saying, which, it, it, in other words, it, it, it's we looked at the image of Moses getting fire from the mountain. And we considered the idea that Moses could pass on that fire and Moses could light up a whole room with fire, that the fire could be passed on. But now it seems like Ben is not talking to Moses. Ben is just sitting there with the book. That is, you don't need a bearer of fire in order to find fire yourself. You can just sit down and start learning. The fire is, it doesn't have to trace its way back to the top of the mountain. It's there in the book. Anyone can find that fire. Okay, and this, I think this is really important because this is something that the rabbis are saying after the destruction of the temple, the destruction of their society and their civilization, the crumbling, the forgetting of all kinds of knowledge, the break in tradition. And yet the rabbis are saying that you can find the fire again. You can restart the fire. It's okay that we've had a break because the fire's in there. The fire's in the book. Um, Rabbi Green? Uh, a few thoughts. Uh, one thing is that Ben Lazai in making these connections, not as put together, but perhaps making them for the first time. And then that in and of itself 
a new revelation of Torah through what he is sharing. And so the fire of that revelation is felt similar to the fire felt at the revelation of Zion. Great, great interpretation. And then, then it really becomes a good proof text. Well, when it was first given in fire, and now I'm giving some more Torah. And of course, every time there's a new Torah revealed, it's fire. Great, yes. All right. Second, I'm reminded of the, the writings from people who visited the Magen Mesrich when he was doing Shabbos and the third meal of Shabbat, and people would throw written verses of Torah at him, and he would up there, you know, speaking to the crowd as he kind of invented Mazenism in the name of the Malshevto, uh, would create connections immediately, and that in some ways the contemporary movements that we all know are rooted in this very kind of experience. Good, good, good. Okay, that that idea that, you know, there are new connections to be made in the Torah. They're like, you know, throw something at me. Let's see what we come up with together. That idea, I think, is embedded in this description of Ben-Azai, but also I, it's, I, I, I want to just underline, underscore, echo, and, and celebrate that notion because I think that is also part of what I'm trying to communicate in this book is that we we can see people throughout the generations creating fire, making these connections. And somebody asked me, I was on some uh, podcast and they asked me, but you know, you, you, you have so much love and reverence for these old commentators, but I like making my own interpretations. I, I, I don't want to be reliant on the old commentators. I want to, I want to feel empowered to, to interpret the Torah myself. And and I said, no, that's that is my point. It, these, this is an inspiration. The things that are that are that our sages, our our wise people have been doing throughout history are a, a model for us, just as Moses was a model to Ben Azai, that any one of us can create the fire of Torah. Right. So I, I that that I, I that I that I want to say emphatically to you all, any one of us can create the fire of Torah. And you had a final point. Final point. Yeah. Uh, I can't help read this enough to be where I know these voices from. Uh, and most famously, the story of the four who entered the orphanage. Yeah, yeah. Right? And for those that are familiar, Ben Solo, Ben Azlai, Ahner, who is Alicia Ben Abuya, and Rebbe Kiva enter the orchard, that is, they enter the party into the higher realm of spiritual connectivity with the divine. And Ben Zoma goes insane, Ben Azlai dies. Uh, or stays out there with God, depending on how you understand that. Ahmed um, becomes a heretic, having reached the uh, ultimate, and only Rabbi Kiva is able to enter into some meeting. Thinking about the danger element of the fire, we see the consumption of Ben Azai, who the vessel, you know, runs up the fire, uh, versus the balance of him in this, in this joint, Rabbi Kiva, who is able to enter and redeem. Good, good. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's a brilliant connection. And uh, you're exactly right. Benazai was one of those who entered into the Pardes. We don't know exactly what that is, but some we've, we've taken it to mean into the deep, the secrets of the Torah, the deepest layers of, of understanding of the Torah. And most of the rabbis that go in don't make it out whole. Only Rabbi Akiva goes in and out whole. That explains why there's some reason to suspect that Benazai was playing with mysticism. Benazai, in general, a very unique guy. He says he, he never got married. And, he, and when they asked him why, he said, nah, what, said what, what can I do? I, I yearn for Torah. I, I can't be with another person. I'm just in, he was, he was, a, he was a mystic and, and a very, an, an extremist. And those sorts of extremes, those are cautioned against in our tradition. 
yeah, there's a place for mysticism, but be careful with that stuff, right? And yet, in this version of Ben Azai, he's just doing the basics, just doing the, and that too can be dangerous. It's still fire, but it's a kind of fire that we can contain, that, that we can possess, that we can, that we can need and use. And, and maybe, maybe it's, maybe there are fires that are too great, that are too, that, that will consume us, that we have to be very careful before we touch. So yes, all of that. Um, Daniel. Yeah, so Rabbi Bloom took a little of our fire. <laughs> Everybody has their own fire. Mostly because I guess there is something beautiful about what Ben Azai says in Shul, but the way that he says the word rejoice is when they were first taken to Sinai on the street, the way that he sort of is so quick to thank Rabbi Yahushua for that very special primordial moment of silence, drop one to one. Yes, maybe it is the recipe that enables for us to sustain and survive the Holy Spirit. But the way that he began is so quick that immediately affected that he's doing with exactly the same magnitude of what was happening at Sinai. But that's where I see the real danger. And it sort of takes into his hands that it's not powerless to say, this is what Sinai is. This is, you know, this is what the Sinai experience. Okay, that's um, interesting. And I suppose as a thing, is I'm wondering if Rabbi Akiva. And his comment was always sort of aware that maybe he was trying to sort of shift that as I had to foresaw that second hand was going to say, Were you maybe in this sort of, you know, this inner chamber? So, well, I hear what you're saying, but maybe there's something greater. Yeah, this is something a little bit protective about this. This is sort of acknowledging that it is some kind of other chamber that often starts to bloom. Whereas then as I said, I'm inside. Yeah, I think th that's fair. There, there's, it's not clear, and I made it sound like it was clear. Oh, there's mystical fire, and then there's regular fire, and that's what this text is saying. But it's not actually clear. I mean, Be Akiva and his students seem pretty sketched out just by this fire. So there, it's not like, is there something dangerous about what Ben Azai is doing? Do we always, even in our most basic connections, have to be very careful about the Torah that we're creating? And about the status, as you suggest, that we attribute to it. I think that is a good question. I mean, maybe there's still something, even in the most basic Torah, we can say things that become dangerous, that have the power to consume, that have the power to hurt. So, yeah, I think there are there are multiple ways of reading, not just the Torah, but of course the Talmud, and this tension between um, the mystical fire and then the fire that Ben Azai is creating, and the and as you say, the way he equates it to Sinai's fire. I think you're right. We could we could do a lot of work in in thinking through what exactly is is taking place in this in this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> those are very different questions. <laughs> those are very different questions. Um, let me um, let me say that of course of course I agree with Rabbi Brous that if he said I work for Rabbi Brous and I agree with her and she is a wonderful rabbi. She actually no, but what you're what you're um, what you're asking about is 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 what I think is one of Rabbi Brous, who I, I work for, one of her great contributions. And, you know, in a way she's, she is, this is her fire. This is the Torah that she's kind of revealed to the world. Even though other people have said it in different ways, she, she has said in a very particular way that the story of Exodus in particular is inevitably a political story because it is a revolt against 
a political leadership. But, uh, I certainly agree with that. And in that sense, uh, uh, the Torah is, 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 has, its, has its political elements. In fact, I was just talking to Rav Shmuley earlier today about like the idea, I have this idea that the two chief values in the Torah, if you could say such a thing, are justice and holiness. And I think there is a, a way of thinking of just the justice in the Torah is sort of the earthly realm of the Torah and holiness is like the intent the attempt to capture the divine and I I do think that's that's part of what is at stake in this text as well is there's some of our Torah seems prosaic and everyday and human and earthly and some of it does seem mystical and strange and holy and one way of thinking about that is um that the that the that the the holy is that which is closer to the to the to the to the ultimate fire, but uh, I'll leave that uh, aside for now. The other question um, is a, a wild question, and I, it, I wouldn't be able to answer it fully, but I will say this, which is part of the question was uh, the question of whether the white fire is inside of us, and whether we bring a certain fire to the Torah that we create a kind of the possibility for interpreting the, for, for bringing out the fire of the Torah within us. And I think not only do I, do I think that's true, but it leads very nicely into the, this last text that I want us to look at together. Um, this text, just one more text before we close it, and it's a short one, that once again describes um, the Torah as fire, um, but also repeats an idea that we started with. And remember, we've been sort of, as I said, almost poetically playing with the image of fire. What, what is the, that symbol? What does it mean? What does it imply? But we are also using that image, and we have been from the start, to justify the ways that the Torah can be interpreted, the multiple ways that the Torah can be interpreted. We saw that with the piles and piles of law that could be hung on every letter. Um, we see that when every time we open the mikrot kodolot and see like, it's just sort of blazing forth. So here's another fire image that, that, that sees the fire as the very reason that the Torah can produce all of these interpretations. So our last text for the night. Um, um, in Rabbi Ishmael's school, they taught, and, and he starts quoting a verse from Jeremiah, um, and he just quotes the second part, but I'll read the whole, the whole thing. Hello, behold, my word is like fire, declares the Lord. So there you have it. There's another, my word is fire. And then he says, and like a hammer that shatters rock. Well, now we got a couple images, the, the fiery word of God and the hammer that strikes the rock. Okay, so what is the school of Rabbi Shmuel said? And this is just one of my, my favorite, you know, what, what justifies the rabbis' interpretations of Torah? What vision of Torah do they have? So here's one expression of it. Just as a hammer produces many sparks when it hits a rock, so does one verse produce many meanings. Okay, just as a hammer produces many sparks, so does one verse produce many meanings. Okay, what's the vision of Torah here? Torah is again a fiery thing, but it's something that can every verse can spark out with multiple meanings. Why? What? What? How does this image help us understand that? I mean, said that from the start. Every verse the rabbis presume can have multiple la layers of meaning. But 
Why? Because of the hammer and the sparks and the fire. What, what's going on? First pass here, Archer says, it seems like it's not just what the Torah is saying, it's what someone is saying about the Torah. And that seems right. It, it seems like who's swinging the hammer here? Someone is swinging the hammer to create new sparks. Who's, who's swinging the hammer? What, what? Let's hear some more thoughts. What else is going on, David? Great. So what? So the Torah is made of fire. The for, Torah can release fire. How does the Torah release fire? Well, it was given in fire. If you could talk to Moses, you'd see fire on his face. Sure. But sometimes we got to work at it. Sometimes we got to make the connections like Benazai, and we string words together, and we find new connections, and then fire starts to blaze. Right. And, and in that sense, it's, it's accessible to all of us. But you know, what if we don't know how to make the connections? What if we don't know how to string these words together? Well, it seems like then we just take a hammer and start banging away at it. We hit the Torah. We confront the Torah. We pound away at the Torah. And suddenly, sparks start to fly. Okay, Which is to say that... There's something in the Torah that can release fire, but it's sometimes latent. Sometimes it's just in potential. Like this fire, it needs a spark to get going. And how do we do that? We, we pound. Now, I'm not sure what that means. I'm curious if anyone has an, uh, an interpretation. What does it mean to pound away at the Torah? Not just to make connections, beautiful connections, but sometimes in an almost, almost like brutish way, just slug, it, slug away at the Torah to produce those sparks. What do you think? Good. So that's, that's it. And that's just the note that we'll end on is that this, 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 what we sometimes call um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the war around Torah, the, the, the arguments, the debates, the, they aren't always saying nice things to each other on these pages. No, you're wrong. I think the Torah means this. No, it doesn't mean that you made the wrong connection. It isn't just a beautiful symphony of of, of weaving connections together through fiery threads, but we fight over it and we, and we pound away at it and we break our heads on it. And we, we struggle to, to, to find some way to release the power of Torah. And it's in that friction, it's in that tension between us as people, but also between the human mind and the text itself, banging away at each other. That's where the friction gets created. That's where the sparks start to fly. And that is the work of Parshanut. That is the work of interpreting, seeking connections and listening to what other people have said and fighting with other people and just trying to bang our way through this Torah to, so that it can once again release that fire that it, that it first produced at Mount Sinai. So um, I wish you all a blazing connection to the Torah. It's really good to be with you all. Thank you so much. Thank you so much um, all for joining and Rabbi Kasher for this amazing session. You know, for those of us who believe in a next world, we may believe in the next world, we can tap into the eternal. But in this world, the Jewish answer to tapping into the eternal, I think most commonly is through Torah learning. That Torah learning is actually the way to enter this timeless experience. And so um, David Kasher has given us a gift tonight of not giving us answers to anything. Not any answers, not a lecture giving us an ideology or a vision to sign on to, but helping to push us back into the experience of Torah learning in its depths. And for that, we're very grateful. We hope you'll buy his Parsha Newt book if you didn't yet, or you could buy it online. Thank you, Beth L., for hosting us. It was great to be with you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org. 
to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.